Welcome to the Three Lines of Defence podcast, the show that provides in-depth discussion into the world of audit, compliance and risk. We bring valuable insights, market information and career advice from industry leaders. Here's your host, Mark Enticott. On today's show, we have Lee Allen, who is the Managing Director and APAC Head at Allen and Overy Consulting. Lee completed a law degree in Sydney and worked at ASIC, London Stock Exchange and FCA. In 2012, Lee joined JP Morgan as an Executive Director for Conduct Risk and Strategy in London before becoming Managing Director in 2015 when he moved back to Sydney with JPM. In 2017, Lee joined Commonwealth Bank as General Manager Regulatory Affairs and in early 2019, Lee moved to his current role. Lee, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'd like to start off with a little bit more about your early life. Can you share with uh, some more information about where you grew up? Yeah, thanks, Mark. So my father was a $2 migrant from Lebanon. Um, he uh, boarded a ship to get here. Back in the days where flying was um, was only sort of very wealthy. Uh, he was fleeing the civil war that raged there for, for many years um, and also a lack of employment prospects. When he got to Australia, he soon married my mother. Um, and they had six children. So I've got uh, three brothers and two sisters, um, and I'm smack bang in the middle. And that was quite a, quite a formative event for me because having a big family um, and also not a lot of money, because my dad was a blue-collar worker, um, meant that we had to really try and make do with what we had, find ways to entertain ourselves, we didn't have a lot of toys, so we spent a lot of time playing outside on the street with neighbours, and that's um, typically not something you see much of anymore, and certainly not something my kids would be doing. Um, I went to primary school in Rockdale, so um, I went to St. Joseph's School, as it was called then, and then moved on to Cogramarist High. Um, so I spent my entire life growing up in the Rockdale, Cogra, Brightonly Sands area of Sydney. Throughout your career, you've worked in a range of different roles and you've worked on both the, the regulatory side and the banking side. Can you provide a little bit more insight into the journey uh, that made you develop your career within banking and financial services and also develop your career broadly more down the sort of compliance, conduct, risk space that you, you have? Sure. I, I- Practiced law after after the secondary school. I practiced law. Uh, apologies, I went and studied a um, law degree at UTS, um, and then I spent two years practicing law in Sydney um, before I decided that I was uh, more attracted to the world of banking and finance, and also the really sort of global international element that came with that. Um, but I had spent you know the last five years learning all about law and developing a legal qualification. So I didn't just want to lose that. Um, I wanted to really sort of hone in on um, how I could apply analytical thinking, reasoning, principles of good law and regulation into a finance banking career. Um, so I then I went and got a two-year working holiday visa, which is uh, almost customary now, a rite of passage for, for many Australians. And I went to the UK, um, and there I got my first job in finance and banking when I joined the London Stock Exchange. Um, and 
there I I did a role that involved reviewing uh, and approving uh, initial prospectuses, um, and mergers and acquisitions, um, fundraisings, and that sort of thing. And and it was quite rules based at the time, so it still lent on the skills um, that I developed in law school. Um, and obviously, it then evolved from there as as I kind of moved across to the SSA. Um, which is now the FCA, but there was a single regulator at the time, and it's now become the FCA. Um, and there, you know, the latest thinking to emerge was that a rules-based approach wasn't uh, effective at keeping the industry um, and the finance sector and the relevant markets that we were regulating on track. So... Um, as, as that thinking was developing, I changed roles into um, the market conduct space. And, and, and that role was leading a team of traders, uh, ex-traders, ex-hedge um, fund managers, um, corporate finance analysts, where um, the main role was to identify and investigate individuals and companies that were committing insider trading or market abuse. Um, also, a part of that was developing the strategy, the forward plan for, for, for how we would mitigate um, that type of misconduct across the UK financial services sector um, and also how firms, so the regulated firms, could play a role in that. So in terms of identifying misconduct from the way that they see things, reporting them, putting in place appropriate systems and controls. Um, it was pretty much part of that role and, 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 and all the thinking that sort of emerged post-crisis, because I was at the regulator right through the financial crisis, which was a hell of a time, and I'm sure we can cover that a bit later. Um, but I was quite fascinated by what drives people to misconduct um, and and how how we as a society can put in place mechanisms to prevent people from going rogue and going down that particular path. Um, I saw very, a very, a very large number of uh, cases, not all of which ended up in the public domain. Um, some of them are cases we investigated, but we didn't feel we had the resources or enough evidence to prosecute. But we saw a lot of cases where very wealthy um and well-paid individuals, some of whom have spent their lives developing um, high-profile careers, uh, professional careers, whether they're in banks, audit practices, law firms, um, and then they would do the wrong thing, and something that would, you know, borderline criminal behaviour, um, and sometimes, in fact, criminal behaviour. So, as that sort of uh, experience. Um, as, as I went through that experience, I then thought about whether there was more I could do from the inside of an institution. Um, and uh, I joined JP Morgan at that point, looking to see what how, how banks actually work from the inside and seeing what I could uh, uh, apply from what I'd learned at the FCA. Um, and I did a reg strategy role there for quite a number of years and developed a culture and conduct program, which was probably the, my biggest claim to fame in that role. I relocated to Sydney with JP Morgan, um, and it was very clear early on that it was going to be 
hard doing my role from a place like Sydney for a bank that's largely headquartered in London, um, sorry, the US, and with a very large uh, presence in the UK. So calls would always be sort of uh, 8 p.m. onwards, and committee meetings, which involve senior leaders in the US and UK, you know, you could tend to have um, committees happening smack bang in the middle of the night and trying to dial into those can sometimes be very challenging, especially with young children. Um, so, yeah, look, after JP Morgan, I joined CBA um, and I joined just as the Austrax um, statement of claim was filed. I think it was about a day after that ha- happened that I started work for the first time. Um, and it was two years of, you know, like it was a whirlwind. Um, it was an incredibly intense and um, stressful time, um, but one that uh, I, you know, deeply cherish and was very rewarding. Um, and it was an awesome platform. And we can talk more about that uh, in a bit. Um, and now, obviously, I've decided to join A&O um, to start up the A&O consulting business, which is um, a new business um, that started out of London about 18 months ago. And we now have a presence in Australia um, and we've been operating for about 12 months in, in Australia. And I'm finding that to also be a very exciting and quite a different role to some of the other roles that I've done before. And is there a particular, a little bit about a and is there a particular area that is a key focus from a consulting point of view? Yeah, so most of um, most of the people we've recruited are ex-regulators and um, ex-bankers, people who have um, run large change programs within those institutions. Because um, we're really trying to go in and provide strategic regulatory consultancy advice, but from a very practical perspective, from a perspective that we have done it before, so we know what some of the issues are that clients are going through and how you get proper change, buy-in, and build a sustainable uh, program of work. Um, And again, that sort of whole philosophy ties in with you know, my fascination with what drives people to do certain things um, and equally what would help mitigate or prevent them from doing certain things. Um, main areas that we tend to see a lot of work in for, for us is um, around governance, um, whether that's you know board effectiveness reviews, governance enhancements, new management information, um, and then that can all, um, would lead on to culture work. Um, so deep dive into culture, culture diagnostics, um, and also using culture as a as a very powerful driver of conduct risk um, and using it as a mitigant to help with conduct. Um, we also focus on non-financial risk frameworks, um, policies, training, all of that jazz. Um, and when I say non-financial risk, I mean conduct, compliance, and operational risk. Um, and our fourth main area of work that we see is regulatory strategy, regulatory change, um, 
and regulatory advice. So that tends to be things like um, the bear regime rollout or my wife would, would remark that I'm probably one of the very few people that seem to benefit from a crisis. Um, and I, I seem to progress into interesting and more senior roles each time there is some kind of crisis, uh, whether it's an industry crisis or a, or a corporate crisis. And I don't know why that's the case, but in any event, I'll give you the, uh, those examples. So probably the first key turning point for me was the global financial crisis where I was at the financial um, conduct authority. Um, it was it was an experience that I, you know, not a lot of people would have been in the centre of, and, and the UK was clearly in. Um, the, it was the, it was London and New York that were the centres of the, the maelstrom that developed, and um, watching banks and markets unravel, and initially, regulators, policymakers, governments. Um, central banks, we all seem powerless um, to do anything to stop it from happening. Um, so it was uh, it was a really panicked time, um, but it was an incredible experience. Um, you know, I witnessed some things there that we probably won't see again for, well, hopefully won't see again ever, but likely we won't see for at least um, a couple more generations from a banking crisis perspective um, and also when that type of environment the pressures the, the, the stress that people are under whether it's job uncertainty revenues uncertainty again it, it again sort of pushes people to start thinking about um, ways to uh, well it, it, it certainly promotes um, potentially people thinking about ways to commit misconduct. So that was the first one. The second one was starting a culture and conduct program for JP Morgan from London. Initially, it was a um, UK program, but then attracted really good feedback and then grew to covering all of Europe and then eventually globally. Um, and that was quite a thing because if you've ever worked at a U.S. investment bank before, unless it comes out of New York, um, it's generally perceived as not worth the paper it's written on. So um, for us to have developed something outside of New York and for them to have adopted it was uh, quite telling. And it, the program um, was, was run across all 260,000 employees. Um, it was at the time, really hard work to get off the ground because regulators had only just started to talk about this agenda um, and people were confused by it. They weren't quite sure how culture drives conduct. They weren't sure how conduct was a, was a different agenda to a typical traditional compliance agenda at the time. Um, and so for all these reasons, made getting that initial traction really hard and each engagement we had with a new leader, new manager was always um, unique and some of them will, would would um, not understand the agenda and it would be very hard to convince them or, or explain to them 
um, how the agenda works. Some of them were just sort of very financially minded and less so on the qualitative piece, and that's a big part of this agenda. Um, and then there are those who are just very resistant to change and don't think that they um, have the time for this type of agenda. So there was uh, always an interesting discussion to be had and to use the, the um, skills that I'd learned as a regulator to try and look for ways to convince people and bring them on the journey. Um, and that's one thing about the culture and conduct um, agenda that's very important. And I'll just maybe explain a little bit about my interpretation of that agenda. During the financial crisis, the key thing that many regulators, particularly the FSA at the time, learned was that more rules don't mean better behavior. Rules on rules is actually counterproductive. Uh, why are they counterproductive? Because actually most people can't absorb that many rules. And most organizations can't implement enough processes, policies, controls to manage more rules. Um, and actually what was more powerful would be to look at the drivers of misconduct. So what is pushing people to uh, look for ways to commit different types of misconduct, whether it's, um, you know, um, market abuse and insider trading or whether it's uh, taking client assets or, or whether it's, you know, uh, overcharging a client on a particular deal or transaction. Um, and if you look at those drivers, one of the key drivers of um, misconduct for corporate employees would be culture and the culture of the organization. So that's how the two tie together. Um, sometimes I now see them, um, corporates wanting to roll them out as distinct programs, and I always advise against it because culture is a very, very strong driver of corporate behavior. It's not the only one, but it is a very strong driver. I would put culture incentives, individual incentives, as probably the, the two of the biggest, but I'd also then add in um, a, a range of other particular things that we, we work on um, as other drivers of behavior. Mark, one other key thing about this agenda is um, it's not a one-size-fits-all approach, and it's very much um, only going to be successful if you can get significant engagement and buying from your employee population and your leadership. And when they have light bulb moments where they, where they turn around and say to you, ah, I now get it, and then they champion the agenda uh, as if it was their own to begin with, that is the type of thing that means it's going to be successful. Um, so it's not good just to pull out a whole bunch of policy prescriptions from the top and, you know, thinking that, you know, the CEO knows exactly how everything should be run always. It, it is a bit about, there's a bit of a top-down approach, but there is also a really big bottom-up element. Because if you get that engagement and buy-in, then the program and the benefits or the actions that the program takes will be much more likely to remain sustainable. Um, and research uh, shows that engagement buying are the key parts of uh, embedding um, sustainable change. You mentioned a number of challenges throughout your career just earlier. Has there been one sort of significant challenge and how did you overcome it? Yeah, I've had a few challenges through my career. Probably the biggest 
challenge would have been the time I joined CBA and um, right landed right in the midst of a, uh, a crisis, being extremely new to the organisation, um, and also being general manager of regulatory affairs. Um, and it essentially was a regulatory uh, crisis. Um, and so I was thrust into a new role and straight into war rooms and, um, you know, a whole series of um, uh, meetings and committees where we were trying to identify what went wrong and also trying to improve, but also at the same time as trying to deal with the back book of problems um, and also manage the regulatory relationships to recognize that um, things hadn't always gone as well as um, CBA executives and board wanted it to, and we were making efforts to improve. So that was, a, that was as I said earlier, an incredibly intense time. Um, but through that, I think I can definitely say it was one of those, um, coming through at the other side, it was one of those career challenges which, I'm so glad I did it. I um, am so glad I experienced it. I take away with me a lot of uh, amazing knowledge and great relationships. I still, you know, have deep relationships with um, senior and and less senior people at CBA. Um, so that for me is uh, very satisfying. During your career, you've managed significant sized teams. What do you see as the key attributes of an effective leader? Probably two there that I would promote. First is be authentic, fair, and transparent. Um, I think for a, when I when I grew up, um, there was that, and when I first started my career, um, really being a leader was about being confident, uh, arrog- a bit arrogant, uh, very aggressive, um, and you know, quite thick-skinned. Actually, um, it was less about looking after your people, being authentic, being fair, being transparent. Um, these days, I think you are much less likely to succeed if you take that approach. That emotional intelligence and empathy are much more powerful um, in inspiring people to to be productive, to be creative, and to want to work for you. Um, because in the modern world, you know, if you are that old school um, tyrant, you you will find um, that there's not a lot of people that want to work for you and you won't get the best the best talent, you won't get the best uh, out of people um, and you won't get the most creative ideas and solutions. So that's probably um, point one. Point two is um, developing your team, you know, taking real pride in that. I've seen managers who are quite threatened by people who are performing really well in their team um, and I say to them you know that's madness you should take pride in that um, you know a, a, a leader's role is to cultivate um, the next group of leaders it's not um, to box them in and uh, and just seek to take all the credit for everything um, plus that's a lot less satisfying from a personal point of view so I think you know, leaving a legacy of some kind um, is really important when you're a leader. Um, I still keep in touch with um, graduates and others that I manage back at the FSA, um, as well as JP Morgan and CBA. Uh, so that's over a 20-year history. I still keep in touch with those people. 
I still check in on them from time to time, and they still sometimes come to me for advice on their careers, which I, I absolutely love. It makes me feel valued. Um, developing a team, though, doesn't mean just being nice to them and just always being supportive and coaching. I think sometimes you do have to be a little bit more directional, challenge them, try and keep them, steer them to be, to, you know, to keep on the path that you think is going to provide them with, um, and the organization you're working for with um, the maximum uh, benefit and impact. You've had lots of stakeholders that you've had to manage throughout your career. What do you see as the key attributes to strong stakeholder management? Yeah, I so at the FSA, we had a wide range of stakeholders. We had politicians, um, we had other governments, we had other regulators, both locally and offshore. We had the media, we had um, uh, we, we had community groups, uh, consumer complaint bodies, and then we also then had the regulated firms um, and their representatives. And the regulated firms were banks, insurance companies, asset managers, and their representatives were a wide range of law firms, um, consulting, auditing firms, and so forth. So. There was a huge range of stakeholders, and one of the challenges was often just trying to get um, your arms around that many stakeholders and developing a plan to keep them engaged. Um, and when you go there to, to again, authentically listen, see what they have to say, it's, it can be very easy sometimes when um, a stakeholder is not from your particular sector or industry to be a bit dismissive. Um, and you know, it's, it's, you, I've seen that uh, time and time again. Um, sure, you know, everyone can have a little bit of a laugh about their misunderstanding about this particular important thing that we're all living and breathing. But the reality is, they've got a point to make. They're representing the section of society, um, and if you don't listen, um, it's at your own peril. So uh, definitely listen. Take the time to think about whether you've got that particular issue covered. Um, and, you know, definitely record it <laughs> um, and continue to engage with them. Um, there were there were many times, actually, where I had to, on reflection, change my approach, having heard from a particular um, community group, uh, where initially I was thinking there was no merit in what they'd said. So, um, and then moving to other roles, um, certainly at JP Morgan and CBA, we had lots of regulators um, and 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 media attention and in both organisations, as well as um, occasionally um, the, the consumer groups and communities and shareholders and various other um, stakeholders that we need to take into account. So, main thing is um, meet with them, have an engagement plan of some description, listen and take action, and that action might simply be you've considered and you really don't think there's anything there, or it might be that you are going to do something, and then report back to them. Let them know what you're thinking and why. If you were going to restart your career now, what would be one key piece of advice you would give to a younger version of yourself? Uh, I'd say be patient. Um, I think in my really early years in my career I got um, I got this thing in my head that I thought I had to succeed by the age of 30 um, and I had to be 
semi-retired by the age of 35, some sort of bizarre concept. I don't know where it came from. Uh, Wishful thinking, Lee. (laughs) Wishful thinking. I'm 45 now and I'm still working. (laughs) Um, And that sort of led me to get quite um, anxious and a little bit depressed about the fact I hadn't reached that particular point and as I was edging closer and closer to it. And that's just not reality. Um, and it would have been much more rewarding and fulfilling if I'd thought about my career as um, a 40, 50-year horizon span where I could do a whole bunch of different things which I was both good at, um, that I could give back to the community or the organizations I was working for, um, and seeing it in that vein rather than it's got to be all done within 15 years from when I left university. And if I don't, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an utter failure. So, um, and why that's important is because if you take that view, then it means every day you will be um, a pr- pretty unhappy because you'll be trying to get to the next level and you'll be pushing your managers constantly. You'll probably push the managers offside because you'll feel you need to be promoted and they'll say you need you need way more experience and you'll be clashing against that the entire time. Um, and it's not a productive place to be. It's not a productive mindset. So take your time, build your relationships. Opportunities will come if you work hard, you stay on track, um, you, you develop your relationships um, and you remain nice to work with. Also, I'd say to people in the early stage of career, don't, don't underestimate the importance of emotional intelligence. Um, it wasn't a trait that we had to develop um, when I was um, starting my, the early stages of my, my career, but it is becoming much more important. So you could be technically really strong and have very low emotional intelligence, in which case you're probably not going to succeed as well as somebody who has maybe a bit of less technical knowledge but is much stronger on the emotional intelligence um, quotient. So the whole world's been going through COVID-19. What do you see as the key areas of conduct risk as a result of COVID-19? There's probably a, there's probably a, a corollary with the global financial crisis. And I know COVID is, is, is more extreme in many respects because it's across the entire economy. Um, the numbers of unemployed are probably going to be far more significant than they were in the the global financial crisis, but there are some similarities. And the similarities come in terms of, again, looking at the drivers of conduct. So the similarities are people are losing their jobs. Um, Leaders of organizations um, panic or are, are panicking about how do they keep the lights on? How do they keep um, the revenues coming in, the cash flows? Uh, maintain in order to keep the organization afloat. In that type of environment, you will have um, people cutting corners to eke out that next bit of uh, revenue um, or to make that next sale um, or, you know, uh, whatever that pressure is. And, And, you know, in an environment where everyone's really uncertain about their own job, their partner may have lost their job, and so forth. So it's um, definitely uh, an area that's ripe for a significant number of misconduct events. 
that likely won't manifest to the wider public for a few years. Um, and I would say that, you know, customers and clients of um, corporates and banks and, and so forth will be the first um, victims uh, of anyone seeking to um, undertake misconduct. Probably the next would then be government schemes. So in Australia, we've seen the job seeker schemes and people claiming under that. Um, and I think we'll likely see quite a few cases of companies um, seeking to manipulate those schemes. And then I also put down um, the central bank, uh, so the Reserve Bank of Australia here, buyback schemes, um, where they buy bonds back. And in the last crisis, we saw manipulation of some of those bonds by individuals in order to extract a higher price from the central bank. So I would say that's, um, that's an area that's definitely something that people, corporates, uh, financial services firms have to keep on their emerging risk radar, um, certainly for the rest of this year and probably into next year. Um, another area of concern is around working from home, remote working. Um, and this one's interesting because it seems to kind of flip. So initially there's a lot of concern about, um, well, everyone's now working at home. They're on, they're, there's less supervision. They're not on a trading floor. How do you monitor them and make sure that you are maintaining the required supervision of them under relevant rules? Um, equally, uh, there's an element as well around mental health, health and safety. How do you balance the needs of the individuals as well at home um, and the stresses that this has put on them from a personal perspective? And how, so how do you not just keep your oversight element going, but also how do you continue to support them um, and give them the required guidance, advice, and any other um, help that they need in, in order to continue to um, perform and be productive and um, not have any significant health issues. So that sort of balancing act, I think, is still playing out. Um, and I think we're likely to see, yeah, both some conduct cases emerging um, as a result of people having too much, you know, unsupervised time at home. Um and we may well see, though, the other side of the coin where we see some cases as a result of people not getting sufficient support when working from home and mental health problems that have emerged as a result. When you look a lot across culture, conduct, governance and accountability issues, how do you see these translate from, say, the financial services industry to other sectors and corporates? That's a good question. The, um, the first thing to, to note is, the financial services industry wasn't the first to go through um, very large-scale reform programs, uh, particularly driving an improved culture, conduct, governance, accountability. We saw similar types of um, programs develop in airlines, particularly from a health and safety perspective, where significant um loss of human life as a result of too many plane accidents drove um, that industry to start to focus on in on this area and really has succeeded massively in reducing 
um, the number of accidents and the number of lives lost. Um, similarly, the mining sector has also um, done similar work. Um, but I would also say nobody is immune from it. There isn't a single area of corporate life which can say hand on heart they're completely immune from uh, all forms of misconduct or all forms of health and safety failure for that for that matter. Um, and it is that type of agenda. It's like managing your credit risk or your market risk. You have to continue to work on it. It's not something you can just do for a year or two and then you can everyone can just step back now and say it's all done. Everyone's just now going to follow exactly what we said they were going to follow and um, we won't have any more problems. And I think that's one of the hardest things for many senior leaders in corporate organizations to get their heads around, that it is a thing that they have to focus on all the time on an ongoing basis um, in order for it to continually embed itself in the DNA of, of their organization. Um, when the CBA, um, when the APRA inquiry into CBA completed and APRA published its report, I recall vividly um, the finance minister at the time stood up and said the government is saying all corporate sector, all corporates should read this and essentially undertake a self-assessment against that report. Now, APRA has since made its regulated firms undertake that self-assessment. And yes, some other wider corporates have also looked at the report and tried to take some learnings from it. But there is a there is a vast population out there that probably didn't do that, um, and the population that did do it have they stopped the work? Have they said the job is done, uh, or are they do they have a program of continual um, effort invested in the, in this particular space? You've worked on both the the banking and regulatory side. What is it like to be a regulator on the, the on the regulator side? Yeah, so at both at the, I say I say my best regulatory experience was at the um, FCA, only because I, I did do a stint at ASIC, but it was a secondment and it was fairly short term, it was twelve months secondment, um, and also at the FCA, you know, certainly that's where I really made my career. So I would say that one was probably the more um, important from. Or, or gave me the best view of being a regulator, um, and I'd say it's it's fascinating because you see the whole sector or market that you're supervising, rather than just being within a firm, a single firm, um, and seeing only the picture that you've got. So you get to see across the wider perspective, um, and you get to be involved in amazing discussions um, with a range of stakeholders as we talked about earlier um, but the thing about being a regulator that could be very frustrating um, was there was always limitations on what we could or couldn't do so if we saw some element of if we saw a problem brewing or we saw some co conduct problem developing if we didn't have the regulatory powers to uh, intervene and those regulatory powers weren't given to us by Parliament, you can't go forward with it. And if you try to get the legislation rewritten, well, you're, you're back in the political cycle 
and you've got to build a really convincing cases and and the government needs to get all MPs, you know, or a majority of MPs on board in order to support change to legislation. So that whole process means that essentially unless the problem that you've identified, which you can't go in and investigate, um, manifests itself in some form of crisis, you're unlikely to get the legislation changed. So that was frustration one. Frustration two was um, resourcing. So regulators um, clearly don't pay top dollar or even market rate for, for their staff um, because they are a bit tied to the civil service in that respect. Um, and so it meant a constant exodus of really talented people who would do two to four years inside a regulator and then move on. Um, and that's good because at least you then are getting those people into industry and they can help from the inside, but it's very then hard to maintain corporate knowledge within the regulator and to, um, you know, build a really strong succession plan, uh, for your, for your leadership at the regulator. So that was probably, um, the main frustration. And there was, there was, there was also, um, so along with the resource and retention struggles that we had, um, I, I would put kind of ongoing media criticism um, as a thing that also means people can lose motivation. So, you know, you never really hear about a regulator that's performing well. Like mm-hmm. it's just not front page news. Nobody cares. Um, well, certainly when they failed, you'll hear about it. Mm-hmm. And so it'll feel like the only news that you ever see about your organization and seeing you are working really hard to to build and to and to improve the markets and the only thing you ever hear is uh, external criticism of your work so that can also be quite hard for a lot of people and probably incentivizes them or can incentivize them to move outside of a regulator you've held a number of senior positions throughout your career and you've talked about a lot of uh, different levels of pressure and stress that you've had to deal with as a result of different crises uh, that have happened throughout um, the world over your career. How have you managed these work pressures and stresses? First to note, I'm not perfect. Um, It's probably one of the areas in my life that I have to continue to try and learn and work on. Um, I think some of the latest research on how stress um, and mental health uh, work uh, is, is fascinating and it's stuff that, you know, Alan and Overy are very good at running regular sessions with very informed um, psychologists and, and counsellors who will kind of really break down some of the science behind the way the brain works. Um, and it's fantastic to absorb because it does make you start to see things from a different perspective and, and certainly will help you um, adapt to pressure and stress better. Um, but, yeah, this is stuff is still developing. Um, and I don't think, when I was, certainly when I was um, starting my career, there wasn't a lot about mental health. Um, in fact, I think in my first two employers, mental health was something to be looked down on. Um, so if somebody came to you and said, I'm suffering stress, depression, um, or something even more worse than that, you would be 
are you weak? That would kind of be the probably the um, the prevailing attitude at the time, or suck it up. Mm-hmm. Um, so the world has moved a, a huge way from from that point, um, and it is very topical and. Um, Lots of board members um, and executives have had their own mental health issues and they've come out about those. Um, so I think we're definitely getting into a much better space. But I'm not perfect. I'll say that again. I have to continually learn um, and I'm open to new techniques. Um, the things that I know do work for me is certainly exercise, um, family time and personal time, you know, getting a bit of personal space. I love my kids, but you know, too much of a good thing, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and holidays. Uh, I think I think Australian culture is very much that save your holidays for um, the big European trip once every three years and take no leave in between. Um, and I think that's wrong. Uh, whereas the European way of life, which I'm very pro, is, you know, regular holidays throughout the year and I think that can really help you unwind from work stress and pressure and just, just level set. Um, and, it, and a lot of stress and pressure is really about mindset. So if you take a holiday, suddenly those things that you were really worried about don't seem so significant. So um, that, that for me is a key, um, a key way to manage stress. And that's going to be a real challenge in 2020, isn't it? The fact that no one can take holidays yet. We've got massive levels of pressure and stress as a result of the situation the world's in and work pressures and financial pressures, et cetera. So this year is exceptionally unique from the point of view of, you know, really working to manage uh, stress and work pressures. Yeah. Um, you know, as I said earlier, I, I'm certainly personally worried about that and the impact on organizations, their employees, society, um, especially when the only holiday you can really have um, or you could have through that period was, um, you know, down to Bunnings to, to go and get some DIY equipment so that yeah. you could then work on the house. Yeah. Um, you know, look, I think we're hopefully moving into a better place in Australia, but it's certainly not the case globally. Um, you know, and people have to take more opportunities locally than you know, even if it's a staycation, it's not as relaxing perhaps as a Bali holiday or wherever people like to go. But um, breaks from work are really important. I think the discipline that um, my CEO, Sally, is trying to instill in us at A&O you know, Consulting is if you have a staycation um, and you're in lockdown, it's really important you don't log on. And really important, you don't take phone calls and have a proper break because otherwise you get no separation between work and your holiday. Um, so I think that's probably much more important. Whereas if you're on, if you're, you know, by the pool in Bali, occasionally checking your emails, sometimes that's perhaps not so bad, but certainly in a time like this, I think um, that line should be clearer cut. What about your passions outside of work, Lee? What, what are they? I love going to the beach. Um, I bought a place in Coogee, which I'm really delighted by. And uh, when I came back from the UK, so I get to walk down to the beach, um, you know, many days of the week. And I love doing the coastal path. Um, as I said, I like exercise. Um, just, just keeps, helps 
keep my uh, keep me sane. Um, walks. I like socialising with friends and family. Um, but equally, I'm, I'm kind of like party boy meets nerd. I also like to um, I like I like gaming. So um, yeah, I'm never quite rationalised those two. They don't quite meet <laughs> in the centre. Yeah, but that's who I am. Lee, thanks so much for providing a fantastic insight into your career journey, leadership, mentoring, and sharing uh, some broader views around conduct risk uh, and governance and also around what it was like being on the the regulatory side as well. Thanks for your time, Lee. Thank you, Mark, for having me and um, for your time today. Thanks for listening to the show. We encourage you to subscribe and feel free to share, rate us and leave a review. If there's anything you'd specifically like us to cover, email us at markenticott at bowenpartners.com. Thank you.